Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. They say Confucius said, before you embark on a journey of revenge, dig two graves. I did the research. Confucius probably didn't say that. But whoever said it was right, revenge bites back. Victor Headley's 1992 book, Yardie, launched a genre of Jamaican pulp fiction. It's the story of a life driven and destroyed by revenge, from the Kingston gang wars of the 70s to the international drug trade of the 80s. And it's the basis for Idris Elba's directorial debut, a movie of the same name, starring my guest today, actor Amel Amin. Yardi, the movie, captures a slice of Jamaican life and musical culture you don't often see on screen. The clash of rival sound systems and DJs at dance parties. And as the main character, D, Amel captures the complexities of a man haunted by his brother's murder and torn between the paths of righteousness and damnation. Welcome to Think Again, Amel. Thank you so much. That was an absolutely wonderful intro. Oh, thank you very Especially much. Especially with the Confucius thing. I never thought about that, but it is true to dig two graves. Or someone said to me, well, you know, getting vengeance is like drinking poison and expecting it not to kill you when you're seeking vengeance for so long. Yeah? Number one, inevitably, it's going to harm the person's soul. Number two, it just, as we see in the movie, yeah. it creates this cycle it just never ends you know then you have we we see retaliation and then d is forced again you know back into the Mm, cycle mm. i have a question for you that we can't actually speak about but can i say it it ruins the movie so what is our attitude by the way we should decide towards spoilers here well i'm interested in what you well without saying the ending then i'm interested in what you think of the ending because you know it seems like it's a man reflecting upon decisions he has made, right? Right, right, right. So, you know, I'm, I'm, Okay, yeah, I'm, let's talk ambiguously yeah, about it. That's fine. I always found um, Dee's a person that's reflecting on, you know, what we set up as he's reflecting upon when he was younger. So much in that kind of Ray Liotta style fashion, but he's reflecting upon decisions made. And um, one of the most powerful lines to me in the film is, you know, really and truly, I'm just a gangster. Mm. And, you know, when we reach that, the precipice of the movie, the end of the movie, and Dee's looking at his brother, and his brother's looking at him and he said, you know, his brother's saying, you know, D, it's time to make the decision, man. Who are you? Right. Are you that guy that's going to let things go as I would? Or are you different? And I found in playing D that I w- was always fascinated by the idea when you get to the end of the journey, D is kind of resolved in the fact and he's upset about the fact that he's like, oh, man, I'm not like you. I can't let this go. It's hard because a little bit like what we were saying at the <clears> beginning, <throat> what you see is this, it's this like inexorable, this momentum of fate, you know, mm-hmm. like one thing happens, the next thing happens. Do you, you don't actually Do you see, believe in fate yourself? No. But when we see it in Shakespeare or we see it in Greek tragedy, I mean, in Greek tragedy, they're going to attribute it to the gods and whatever. Mm-hmm. In Shakespeare... It's sort of Random like of it's sort of like the it's the yeah it's like karma it's the momentum of a life you mm-hmm. know this happens leads to a causal chain yeah. that you can't escape and that's that's what I see in Dee's case like I don't see a man making decisions his first act that starts all of this is an act of impulse right he can't restrain himself mm-hmm. at his brother's funeral mm-hmm. which psychologically or actually we don't know unleashes you know ke- keeps his brother's ghost or duppy yeah as i guess they call it you say it perfectly culture, yeah, yeah, yeah. um trapped on earth and haunting him mm. fra- and basically driving him to revenge and by the way we never decided whether or not that it was idris and i never decided whether or not it was a real ghost or a traumatic kind of experience in the mind that's causing them to have delusions. Yeah. I decided and he decided, but we never decided together. Okay. Did you I'm ever saying? discuss what you had decided? We did and we didn't discuss <laughs> okay. what we decided, okay. you know, we thought, you know, cause he's got to go to the editing room and not make decisions based on what I was experiencing. I mean, for me, it's gotta be psychological because I, I don't believe that ghosts mm. get trapped on earth. For me, it was less about Mel's opinion, my, my opinion about it, it's more about what D yeah, right. thought about what it was. I had the sense that D felt that it was, was real. real. Yeah. Yeah. So then haunted as a result of that very fir- that first act of impulse, that inability to control himself, and he freaks out and sort of doesn't let his brother have a proper send off. Mm. Then in a sense, it seems to me that there's no escaping really after mm. that. Like even the kind of nice domesticity that's happening in London mm-hmm. when he's reunited with Yvonne yeah, and, yeah. and his child. You know, it's play acting. It's like, I can feel that it's not gonna, mm-hmm. it can't last. Uh, listen, everybody's right, man. Yeah, yeah. That's what I love about the movies. It's like, everybody's right. You know, had you had this conversation with me about a year ago, it was a different time in my life 
in terms of my association with D. Mm. The process of doing the film, I, I went on a, a real kind of interesting journey of, of method acting and discovering what that truly meant. And it's something very different for everyone, but for me, it really meant accessing a part of self that is dormant, playing it up and then living in the world from a cerebral point of view and then making sure my environment constantly pushed my mental space into that world. And so I would have definitely had a different opinion then. It's crazy what, the, what can happen to the mind is what I'm saying. You know, really, and I, I understand Dee's trauma. You know, I've lost two friends and my uncle died a couple of days ago. So I, I understand that trauma more now, more than ever. Right. But also just from when you're pushing your mind to do something as the actor and you're pushing your mind and then you're living in, in an accent and you're interacting as a person and people in the world are meeting you as that person. Mm. And so they are telling you. So if I met you today, I was like, what? Well, yeah, right, yeah, man, everything, Chris. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man, well, yeah, I just deal with this thing, you know. And you would have a, a reaction that would confirm a truth that I'm perpetuating to you. Do you get what I'm saying? And that sort of teaches you as the character who you are exactly. as well. Like even exactly. though you are, you're the one that's creating Emoting it, it's, it yeah. it's created in dialogue with the and, world. And exactly, a dialogue happens. So, But now I'm fully resolved in whatever anyone feels about. Is D like in a compartment now somewhere? Compartment's a good word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Compartment's yeah. a good word. You it can pull him out if you need, you just it, pull it, him you know, out. It, just cha it changed <laughs> me, man. I'm British and I grew up in a stage school. Mm. And so we're taught to behave. What's a stage school? Stage oh, school you mean is like acting a, school. It's like a drama school, but yeah. for, for kids from six to sixteen. So I've been professional from that age, right? Okay. You know, working in theatre and plays and and TV shows, and so you are taught how to behave in a way that the world deems correct or mm. uh, comfortable, professional or whatever. Professional. They're teaching you etiquette, professional. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Uh, and so D taught me not to give a fuck, and that was a different vibe. And I have that in me anyway, but like really just like not care. About so what, so you know, playing that role then in a way unlocks a way. other things in for your for as, your life and as career. they as they do, you know, certain roles shift and change you and this one no more than this ever in my life because also I'm I'm dealing with a recent ancestral background which is my family being Jamaican, right? Right. And never I never spoke patois. I didn't speak the language. You were born in London. London. Mm -hmm. Okay. And your parents were like- My, my dad's from, from St. Vincent and my mom's Jamaican. Uh. And so there is a direct language I heard in the house. You know, we call in my house or in London, we call London Little Jamaica because it's so influenced mm. by Jamaican culture. And in my house, when you're going home, it's, it's Vincentian food, it's Jamaican food, it's all of that. In yeah. the language, the discipline, the ideas, the culture. So I grew up as a British Jamaican, but certainly a Jamaican or Caribbean person. But I never Surrounded spoke, by Jamaican people. Absolutely, but I never spoke the language. Mm. And so just being able to speak the language makes me feel good. I'm like, yeah, I can talk the thing and you know. You had to actually go back and like learn some of the phrases that-, that I mean, all of it, yeah, essentially. Yeah, I had yeah, to start okay. at the beginning, you know. Right. It's like to have the confidence to do the Jamaican accent, but also to speak Patois, mm. which like Shakespeare, it lends itself to a different version of English. You know, so I recently interviewed Marlon James. Um, mm. So, you know, he... So I read his book for this film. Oh, you, re you read Brief History of, of Seven, Seven Killings. Killings. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. And and was the first time that I think a lot of readers had seen Jamaican Patois, like, used in that way, mm. kind of brought into... I don't know. Just mainstream shown, consciousness. Mainstream consciousness. I wanted to say high art, but just shown for the beautiful thing that it that it is. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a tiny drop of it from reggae music, mm -hmm. and, and but the rhythms and the and the the, I, the know, rhythms and the similes. Um, you know, my grandma says something. You know, your mouth run dry like water puss. <laughs> you know, so she's based on how the cat goes down and it drinks from the bowl. And there's so many different phrasings that just is readily available. And they don't know, or my grandma doesn't know, she's doing a version of high art metaphor and simile. <laughs> right, she's right. just it's doing just... her culture, but it's definitely in there. There's a poetry to the way that they speak and they take their time. And um, I mean, it's a freedom of language you know, and a kind of lyricism of language that you can only get when it's not controlled by schools and dictionaries, you Absolutely. know? When it's Absolutely. coming out in just speech. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. I mean, it's yeah. a different thing, but similar to what happens in rap music. I reckon it's the same thing, man. I mean, I'm saying different because yeah, contextually it's different, really different culture, different, yeah. whatever. But I mean, the rapidity with which the language absolutely, changes and like man. invention of everything. It's and, in the way yeah. we communicate. Even to me, when I first heard you speak yeah. like it raises like a like a wow to me because you've got a new york slight <laughs> to your accent it's oh, not too funny. gruff but it's in there and so you can hear the history of the city in you i don't know my 25 it, years after leaving the the suburbs of maryland yeah right yeah, yeah. so but th th there's there you go i assume that you weren't fully from new york right, right? right so i could hear that the city has had an influence but there was a neutral tone that i couldn't identify as a full bred New Yorker. Like I now have, mm. I think, a very, because my voice is getting deeper as I get older, I've got a slight Caribbean thing to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, London, definitely. And a prominent know. Los Angeles accent, I would say. No, <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but I was listening to myself in an interview the other day and I was like, there's a transatlantic feel into the way I express myself, mm. you know, which I saw a lot in Idris when I was working with him and him speaking with him. Like he's got a transatlantic feel feel like if you mm. saw him on SNL recently mm. it's like you know he's talking American at times but he just but it doesn't feel that like much of a shift so for all those all those episodes of The Wire too he had to embody oh, yeah, yeah. you know he had to embody I got a that, man like, that says you can have your life back <laughs> yeah. that kind of thing yeah yeah he's one of the many I, I gotta say that British actors in general just have a much better track record of being convincing mm. in other accents I think it goes back to that whole you've heard that old story about Dustin Hoffman and Lawrence Olivier, Olivier yeah, try sitting acting, on the, darling. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Right. That, you know, like we're Americans are traditionally focused on from the inside out. Mm. British acting culture was historically more outside in, or at least willing to deal with the outside and yeah. not treat it as fake. I, I, I happen to, for me anyway, disagree because I I learned some of my great acting from Americans, from American movies, mm. right? And from that period of time we're talking about the 70s and 80s and of films, and even for me, the 1940s, if you're talking about like Catherine Hepburn movies with Spencer Tracy and Jimmy Stewart. So I have really been, what I love about the American nature of things is to deal with things from a visceral, emotional point of view. Sure. What the English do well is intellectualize it, right? They mm. intellectualize the whys and how comes, right? right because right. of theater training, that's what you have to do. And I would also say we have an advantage in terms of accents because anybody that's outside of America has is forced to look at America <laughs> right, 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 and right, the rest right. of the world. Right, right, right. Whereas America's only forced to look at itself up until recently, up until the last 10 years. You know, in terms of culture, you don't really need to know anything outside of the Beatles and Bob Marley and all the heavy hitters. Yeah, unfortunately for us in some ways. But I am not suggesting that all British acting is mm. from the outside <clears> in. <throat> I do think that there's like in the training, like at RADA and other mm -hmm, places, there's mm -hmm. a, and tell me if I'm wrong here No, you're too, not wrong at all. But there, there's a advanced level of technique around voice and movement mm -hmm. that American acting tradition didn't really do, do because we came that. because of post Stanislavski mm. just like get inside the soul of the right, thing, right, you right, know, because right, right. that's what we were about, you know, yeah. the psychology. Like. I would say I'm quite American in that fashion, but I do approach it from the cerebral first because I feel like anything we do, everything we do is um, very, it's emotion based. I mean, the psychology right, to it, but right. it's emotion based. I think also for me, I always have to remember for myself is that because I've got Caribbean parents, it liberates me from my Englishness completely. Mm. Do you get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. So my dad is an immigrant to England and he taught me, you know, Amel, you know, go out and get what you want and you can do it every want in this life, and mm. which is very American values. Indeed. Whereas, you know, my mom who grew up a bit more English was like, you know, do your best, you know. She didn't quite say stay in your place, but that's a very English thing, you know. Sure. Don't ride about it. Don't rock the boat. Don't rock, rock the boat. Tall poppy syndrome. So those tall poppies and exactly. so the tall poppies get, <clears throat> cut. get cut off. Yeah. I got, can I tell you, this is mm. just reminding me, uh, it's just a very funny non sequitur. <clears throat> I went to a high school in DC mm. and we had Japanese exchange students come and they gave us a gift, which was then put over the, the doorway of our school, yeah. which was in beautiful Japanese calligraphy, which we learned the translation was the stake that stands out gets hammered down. Wow. <laughs> so talk about cultural values right wow. there. Yeah, right. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs>
That's mad. I thought like the American anthem says that within itself. You know what I mean? It's quite ironic. Which part? Well, to like, you know, you know uh, I pledge allegiance to mm. the flag and the republic. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know what I mean? It's, right, that's right, always right. been a thing to me. Like, I pledge allegiance to the flag and the republic. Commitment to... To the army. To the, like, you know, to, yeah, the to army, the, you know, To yeah, the singular right. cell. Right. But funny enough, it's it's <laughs> over the last hundred years at least, it's one of the places where you found the greatest voices that have just jumped out and said, no, we stand for this. I love that about the American way. Actually. Yeah, I mean, in spite of the very real and very fundamental contradictions at the founding of this nation, of this like commitment to freedom in a land of slavery, mm-hmm. we those were the stated values, freedom, mm-hmm. liberty. We were born in rebellion, right? Yeah, right, right, right. So, so, you so know. in essence, even of the time <laughs> the osmosis was beginning, if you're saying that, if you found something on that, that's right. then I guess the osmosis of change was beginning even then when they decided to say those things. I mean, you can't say you stand for one thing and it not change the tides eventually. You know, a guest on the show the other day was talking about the idea that internal contradictions in a thing can be the seeds of change. So mm. if you start a country on the basis of freedom, but you have slavery and oppression in it, you have nonetheless given the people of that country the ammunition to point and say Absolutely. hypocrisy. You know? And the, I, the thread of ideology that cannot be shifted Yeah, or time will shift the, it. The promise that has to be made good 100%, somehow. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, yeah. Look at us, man, getting all like, oh, I know, it's all deep and, <laughs> deep and esoteric. And, and esoteric. <laughs> and, and so let's back to the subject. First of all, I wanted to, at the risk of randomness, I did want to pick up on Jamaican Patois. And mm. while I was watching the movie, I was taking notes because I think it was the let you watch the movie early app, Vimeo or whatever <laughs> right, it was. Right, right, right. Was giving me subtitles. No, it's being released with subtitles oh, in America. Okay, okay. Now... No diss to the producers of your wonderful movie, but mm-hmm. there was like time and time again where they took something that was absolutely exquisite in the Jamaican patois. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, really? Dumbed like, it down. Yeah, yeah. So like, so when... The problem I, is we screened the film Yeah. Um, at Sundance and those who loved it, loved it. And those that found it complicated were like, we just didn't understand the language. And even when we was doing the movie and was doing the D's voiceovers, it just kept saying to me, Mate, you gotta open it up a bit more. And I'd learned the accent. Spoon feed them a little bit. A little yeah. bit. And, yeah. I, and so for me, I was just like, no, my more talk like this, you know, <laughs> yeah. how way I, I deal with my brother, how I, I them thing there. And and yeah. he was like, instead of like, how way I deal with Say it again? How way I deal with No, I don't know. So I'm basically saying like, what are you doing? Ah. What are you doing? Huh. In an in an attack. So so we so we I deal with. You know what I mean? So it's one of them ones where I learned the accent and then had to like open it up in the voiceover, which was kind of it was challenging for me mentally. The best example, though, was when Jerry Dredd is shot. Now, we should give the audience a little background here. This is in the early part of the film, 1970s in Kingston. And there's a gang war going on between two different sides, Tappa's gang and Spicer's gang. Mm-hmm. So it's a big mess. So a little girl is killed in the crossfire or whatever. And Jerry mm-hmm. Dredd, who is the older brother of D, your mm-hmm. character, is a DJ, sort of like informal DJ yeah. and I want to talk about that in a second about yeah. what that culture is but he's you know he's a peacemaker and he brings the heads of the two gangs Absolutely. on stage at the yeah. concert which is reminiscent of a Bob Marley thing by the way brief history talks about like um Edward Siago right. and Norman Manley he brought the two political parties together and held their hands in the air because there was a lot of war going on in the streets because they both belonged to two political parties the PMP and the JLP so that was a very real thing going on in the late 70s and 80s and that, in actual fact, in real life, is still going on between the two political parties about who's going to get resources and rations. Two politicians convincing both parties that, you know, you should vote for us. And then arming those two communities with guns, gotcha. which would end up uh, creating the warfare that existed. There's a streamline of truth in what happened, even in Yardi with that bit there. There's a shooting that happens at this peacemaking event. And Fox. King Fox. King Fox. King Fox, one of the gang leaders. 
he cries out, perfidy. Yeah, man. Perfidy. Perfidy. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and the subtitle went treachery. Perfidy is definitely perfidy. I mean, it's an it's, English. It's, it's an English in the word. Bible. Right. You know, it's like I was like, you know, I hear you, man. Yeah, but, you yeah, know, yeah, 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 yeah. That's what we, it we've is. already established in this conversation that you are on another level intellectually. No, Sarah. no, no, no. It's not about intellect. It's not about intellect. In this case, the decision is about reaching audiences, and you guys yeah. did your testing, and and that makes sense. It's just a thing about the from, from of my the word perfidy yeah, is perfect. and from my standpoint, the willingness of an audience or a listener, the interest, the mm. level of curiosity yeah. to actually be delighted as opposed to off-put by something that is unfamiliar. You know what I'm saying? I completely concur, man. I just <laughs> I do I do wonder in this particular era of cinema, yeah, yeah. how much that exists, man. You know, we're yeah, in yeah. a very kind of like a superhero remake world where people want the comforts of something they've known before. Sure. Do you get what I'm saying? Sure, so that's, sure. I think that's the challenge with, with any film is to remind them enough of something or to capture their attention enough to go on this journey. I'm so engaged about how Roma was able to do its mm, thing because it mm. was unapologetically itself, but then it has the beast bed of Netflix to really press it out there, to to gain a certain audience interest and to say, hey, watch this in the comfort of your home right. and it's not gonna be something you're comfortable with, but it's a truly foreign film. And by the way, if you don't get it, you're kind of silly. Do you get what I'm saying? Right, right, right. That's, that's the right, kind right, of right. like to insinuation. That, that sense of, yeah. And Netflix also, as you, as you were suggesting, has that kind of algorithmic mojo where they can just be like pointing ads to the right, right person people, yeah. and whatever. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. crazy, right? Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that sound culture. So this was like an informal situation in the movie where you have people in Jamaica and then later people in London that are rival DJs. Yeah, it's a rival bit DJ. like you had in hip hop here it's in exactly New York. Exactly the same yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And there was a lot of focus on these sound systems. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like making sure the records were a certain thing, you know, making sure you had the best cut, not messing up, the, mashing the records up. It just really taught me a lot about that during the filming because I didn't know the exact DJs, you know, but like sound clashing, it was such a badge of honor to be a DJ and to be an MC. And actually the DJ was more popular than the MC, much like in hip hop initially. But I had to learn. So the MC is almost like a hype man or it's something. A hype it's a man, just up yeah, front yeah. kind of getting exactly, the crowd going. Exactly, exactly. But then they became, and art was what kind of was birthed from it. And chatting and having your lyrics was such a big thing. When I went to Jamaica and I lived there for three months before I started the movie, and I went to somewhere called Dub Club. And Dub Club gives you that vibe of something that was previously existed. Authentic. Exactly, like, yeah. you know, where they're chatting on the mic and they, you know, hyping up the crowd. Chatting is like mostly improvised. Exactly. Not totally, right? Not it's totally. Like you'll have bits of phrases in your head that yeah, you then kind Yeah, and of that you keep, exactly. So it's like you piece together this you know, and, and um, there's different f things, like something that didn't end up in the movie, but it's like, you know, it's like, yo, Blair Lord, the number one song that made the body go round, round, round. Right now, we're yeah, up on this thing, you know, a pure vibe about to swing, you know? All the girl, them, all the man, them come together and peace and harmony so we can vibe. I <laughs> stew! Cause you know, say the vibe set right long time ago. When I say lift up my chalice and the full up percent, see? Real bad man say my gun never empty. Really have man, me no know about no yardy. Kill a sound boy with my eye known army. Black line, me not deal a red cat. Your damn life, you say me can't chat. And it's them kind of vibes there, you know? So you were just dissing the red cat sound system? That, exactly, exactly. <laughs> which was in the movie. It, which was, is in the, the movie. The rival Rico, the drug lord. Uh, right. Loose cannon has this sound system he's very proud of that's very expensive. Exactly, whatever, yeah. exactly. He's put all his <laughs> pride and joy into it. That um, was really cool. Thanks for that. Oh, you're welcome, man. That's all. Like, my brother wrote those lyrics. Oh, my, yeah. My younger brother wrote all the lyrics that D's in the movie. And so he taught me how to chat. Oh, nice. You know, because he's a rapper and that, he taught me how to, because he's got a, a, a link to that particular past, he taught me how to get there. He's pretty big in the UK. What's, yeah. what's his name? His name's Mikel Amin. Mikel or Mikel the Energy. Oh, uh, okay. And as a result, you kind of took your path as an actor right, right. and left, left the rapping to yeah. him. But you write some poetry. Yeah. And you were at New Yorkian Poetry. Exactly. It was my first time night. reading that stuff live. And it was interesting, man. It was very interesting to do that in front of an audience. Was it just you up there? Or was it like a slam situation? It was a slam situation. All right. I was in a slam. Yeah, I got scorecarded and everything. What'd you get? I got a, I got a 10. 
All from right. one lady. I got a 6.6 from another. Okay. And I got an eight from another. No accounting for taste, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, listen, <laughs> listen, I was just happy to get up there and I actually, that I actually did it. I was definitely nervous about doing that. When you're an actor, right, it involves nervous, but that's not your own, you know. Exactly, but it's my, this is my own yeah. words and my own personal life, so it was it was great, I enjoyed it. You said you have one that you might be able to share? Sure, sure, I'll sure, sure. I would, I would love that. Yeah, of course, man, I hope it doesn't bore you too much. Let me give a bit of context. So I, when I was, I've only had one job ever in my life, okay. other than acting. Okay. I've been acting since I was six years old, so I worked at this place called the Loan Processing Center. And the Loan Processing <laughs> Center is basically those annoying people that call you up and try and sell you loans from a phone, you know, your random phone calls. And so I was doing this job for six months and it was monotonous and it was just like mashing up my brain. I'd been an actor for since I was six to 16 and I was 16 at the time. And I'm like, how am I gonna get out of this? I felt depressed and I said to myself, you know what? I picked up a piece of paper and just started doodling in between calls. Mm. And then what happened was this thing that I now call affirmative poetry that really shaped my life. Mm. And it kind of went like this, excuse me while I fantasize on my dreams. Bright lights, fancy cars, and female screams. People loving and respecting my name. What I'm searching for, could it be fame? Never again will a male be alone. There's phony people all up in my zone. While I'm watching my back, a bodyguards are watching it for me. They're ready to die, ready to bleed for my money. Consequences of being the great one. There's nothing real, never ending, fake fun. There are analysts of every wrong move. You wanted to be me, you wishing it was you. But in the quietest corner of my mind, rests a child searching for his future blind always hoping and always optimistic. Keep a focus on my mind, the dream's realistic. And then I went on to say last night because that was the first part and then I wrote a second part to it now. Those were simplistic flows from a 17 year old reflecting on things that would come to pass. But did he witness five broken hearts? Two for me and three for them. Did he witness the death of a best friend? The velocity of that woman's push. I'm fucked up in the mind because I'm less affected by that than my own career. The good die young and I'm pulled in both direction, feeling both angels pull. The devil seeks to keep me out, scared of my family's clout. Conscious fools and poor righteous teachers, well fuck all of that, cause I'm trying to get that back. I'm the greatest you've never had, is what I told my ex when I told her to come for me. And she rode for me, spoke for me, and I carried her baggage. A Jesus Christ complex, oh my God, my publicist is gonna be vexed. <laughs> because they taught me how to hide my smiles and cries. They don't understand this is bigger than a career. I'm trying to save my sister from suicide. Dear Bubsy, please don't leave me, like Uncle Leo just did. I promise if you give me five more years, I'll achieve some of the things we spoke about as kids. So that was, that was the bookend of something I wrote many years ago. I think now is a good time for us to go to the second part of the show. Where sure. We're yeah, going yeah. to go to surprise conversation starters. Let's do, I feel like we've been surprising each other already. To I, yeah, no. It's been I, great. I love it. This has been wide open and exactly what it should be. So I love my job. Do you know, it's really nice to have conversations <laughs> that well, I'm just thankful to be talking to people about my art. So I'm happy for that. But when it becomes interesting, because, you know, the funny thing about being an actor and what I was going to say is I'm a, I'm a writer director. So I've mm. directed short films mm. and I'm about to do two features right now that are in the process of happening. Mm. But it's just good to be able to speak and open up my mind in a conversation because often I'm limited by the box that one has been put in. Yeah, whatever the context of the given project that you're exactly. working on. Exactly, so it's nice when I get to speak. Yeah, freely. I mean, acting and I guess acting and filmmaking, I mean, it really is a craft in the sense that you are very often laser focused on kind of the one practical elements exactly. of yeah. context, you know? Yeah, like how I heard, we, it, it was heard it said it was a blue collar job, you know what I mean? <laughs> right, right, and right. It, it really is in that sense. And for me, yeah. I've had to admit to myself, oh, Mel, I've been around actor actors that are just, you know, so that is all they're obsessed with. And I'm obsessed with a broader subject when it comes to the arts and what it can do both politically and to the emotions and everything else. Let's go. Okay, so this one is, is really interesting and will definitely take us somewhere cool. The person being interviewed here is Ashton Applewhite. Um, <laughs> oh my God. The author of, <laughs> she's an author and activist. And, great and the video is called... Why do we treat old people like babies? That's ageism. Elder speak is a term coined by Yale uh, psychologist Becca Levy for the uh, condescending language that so many people revert to, almost like baby talk for older people. Um, honey, sweetie, dearie, 
that is condescending and diminishing. And no one likes to be condescended to, of course. Her studies show that people who are spoken to in this way actually start to think and move and act differently, even people with severe dementia, who you might assume wouldn't be uh, perceptive to that. Nobody likes to be condescended to, and certainly uh, older people are no exception. In the US, it is really rare to be at an event that includes all ages, unless it's a family gathering or a big social event, like maybe a sports event or a march or something. And it didn't used to be this way. In, in as, as recently as 150 years ago, most Americans um, might not even know their age, didn't celebrate their birthdays. And then it began to be, along with the Industrial Revolution, age began to become important. It started to be used as a legal indicator of when you could have access to things, marry, go to school. School began to be divided into grades. Nursery school came into existence. Old people's homes came into existence. And when, and all those institutions had the effect of fostering segregation, people started to socialize and be educated and so on with their age peers. And when you have segregation, you foster discrimination. So ageism came along. And it is really, really important to question why, if you're in a room and everyone is the same age, why is that the case? And unless there's a good reason to reach across age boundaries. We, we have this idea that age is a huge gap, but in fact, age tells you very, very little about what a person is interested in or capable of. It's a much smaller gap than class, I think, or than a lot of um, you know, other things that shape who we are and how we are in the world. Ageism is based on stereotypes, of course, the assumption that all members of a group are alike, um, which is, of course, never accurate and, and never, never right. They're especially dumb when it comes to aging because the longer we live, the more different from one another we become. You know, a group of seven-year-olds, obviously each seven-year-old is unique, but they have a lot more com in common developmentally and socially than a group of 17-year-olds who are way more homogenous than 47-year-olds and so on. So we tend to think of all older people as like old, as though they you know, were lumped into some category, which is one reason I so heartily dislike the term the elderly, as though you somehow you know, fall off a cliff one day and get lumped with all these same, you know, same looking and same acting and same thinking older people, when in fact the older we are, the more heterogeneous we are and the less the, our chronological age says about us. So you live in LA, which is the sort of capital, world capital of youth of, uh, obsession. Right? Yeah, man. To be honest, I, I've always feared getting old. I don't know why. It's hard to kind of grasp. For example, within the context of my career, I've been very speedy Gonzalez in terms of I've wanted success to come early, you, fast. You felt like, a, like a, um, a fuse was burning and you had to... You had yeah, to like, like, let's get this party yeah, started. Yeah, you yeah. Know, I feel like I've had... And when I was 19, I was on a show called Kidhood. Yeah. And that blew me up in my country. Right. And then I came to America. That was a nice resurgence. But then after that, it's been like slowly but surely climbing the ladders of it. And I think for me, I've always had a thing with age because it's almost like I want to get to the next chapter. It's like I want to get this career situated so that I can get to the next chapter. And um, what would the next chapter be? I don't know. Like family, marriage, uh -huh, um, uh -huh, uh -huh. children. Uh -huh. In your background, in your childhood, did oh, yeah. you come from lack? I mean, was there a fear of not having? Like, I'm asking that because... What, from a financial yeah, point yeah, of view? Yeah, or whatever. Yeah, I, I mean, I like, it, what's I, driving that, you know, urgency? That's you know, a great like, question. Yeah. I think, for me, it's, a, it's an interesting one because I come from both things were there. We were a family that had and then didn't have. Uh -huh. So we lived in a you know, three bedroom house and thing. Mm. And then all of a sudden we're living in council flats because we've lost all our money. And that's so like a different saying? kind of fear. It's that's a different a type of fear. So that desire to have more, to have excess, to take care of my family has been with me since I was in private school where we couldn't afford the school fees anymore. And I had to go out and work as an actor and pay my school fees to stay in school. So that's always been there. I have great relationships with older women. My best relationships in the world are with older women. Mm. Um, Kathy Bates is a dear oh, friend of she's, mine. She's she, wonderful. She, we did a show I don't, together. I don't know her personally, but she's, she's genuinely, a wonderful presence. She's yeah. genuinely wonderful. And we yeah. have a very intimate, great relationship. A lady called Dinah Castle, she works with me on most of my material as an acting coach. And we have a, such a wonderful relationship. And what's interesting is both, it's both romantic 
both relationships were romantic in the mm. non-sexual way. It's romantic in the sense of like their experience versus my youthful, brash hope and insular determination mm. to achieve mm. what it is I want to achieve in life and that you can do it too, even though they're exponentially on paper more successful. But whatever that thing is, you can go and get it done. And that's what that's where my relationships- You're finding that gives them energy. It gives energy and they give me energy and experience. You know, I love people that have those years behind them. I'm a student of wisdom. I want all the information as quickly as possible so that by the time I get to those nearing ages, you know, I should have accumulated enough information to be able to kind of do the same for someone and else. That turns into wisdom. It turns into wisdom yeah. of, of sorts. So I have a wonderful relationship with people that are older, but yet I've had a fear of getting older myself. And I think it's also about time. You know, my uncle yeah, yeah. passed away three days ago now. And it's the first time I've ever watched death in front of me, like watch death leave the body. And um, it's just different. It's different. And so that has done a couple of things to my mind. It's maybe understand loss, made me understand how much this moment, me and you talking right now, is genuinely the most important thing in my life right now. It is important that I honor this conversation and just be here. And I wanna be able to hold on to that as much as possible. That was what I was gonna ask you was, do you think those things are necessarily contradictory or do you think it's a young man's idea that if you're not afraid, that if age and, and death and all that stuff is not something that you push away, that somehow you're gonna lose your momentum. Do you think that that's true? Do you think that your momentum, your mm. energy, your drive actually being... requires that fear? Or of, whether- of death. Yeah, of, or whether you, or whether, if you were to overcome that fear of mm. age and death, mm. it might actually be beneficial. That it's def it'll definitely be beneficial like from a mental health perspective, right? Because it's inevitable. It's inevitable. It's <laughs> something that one must go through both death and the aging process. I found it to be a great driving force for me. Mm. Like, let's get this done, let's mm. get this price done. But then at the same time, it's not necessarily always the most pleasurable along the way. <laughs> right. And and right. I think I'm someone that can find peace quite quickly if I put aside my ambition. But because I have like a truly ferocious ambition, truly, because I have that in me, that puts aside peace Age, I'm 33, started when I was, you know, effectively six years old, but 16 again, came to America when I was 23. You know, I'm having this conversation with you today. I've been in America for 10 years. You know, so all the maths are doing its mm. numbers at different mm. points. But at the same time, I'm always quite happy to be somewhere. So it's like, I'm happy to be having this conversation with you. I'm happy to be open up yard. I'm still fascinated from a youthful perspective, but at the same time- There's another part of your the, mind The ambition like, is like, on, yo, come there's- Come on, come on, yeah. Yeah, because it's like, I wanna be one of the contributors of great art to the world. I wanna have the power and influence to make the art that I want in this world and have it platformed in the world for the world to see as a director, writer, filmmaker, actor, artist in general. So all of that is attributed to success, especially in the world we live in today. So if I'm in a movie that makes a billion dollars <laughs> and I wrote it and I star in it, I have written my ticket to doing whatever, you know, whatever you want. I want. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? So <clears throat> it's no. a weird place we're in in society and me personally. So in a sense, the answer is yes. I mean, that your ambition does, those two things are mutually exclusive. To have your ambition, mm. you have to have that fire under your ass. I mean, at least as you understand it. To some now. degree, some degree. But then, and the last thing I'll say on it, but when I watch someone die, I realized the one of two things that matter, mm. my own health and the health of my family. And I'm not saying that to be like nice bow, really, that's the only thing I cared about in those moments. My health, the health of my family, seeing them and spending time with them, that's it. And so that was a rude, a serious punch in my face, like wake up to what's truly important mm. because everybody's gonna leave you or you will leave everybody. It's all happening. And as much as you wanna grab at all these things, enjoy the ride a bit more, Mel. You know, bring your dad out, bring your mum out, enjoy the time. What, Jimmy, just do all of that shit because all of the stuff you accumulate, all the art you put out in the world, will mean fuck all yeah, yeah. when those people are not here to see it. You know what I mean? I would suspect too that a better relationship with aging and death might actually, I mean, the art you're making is, mm. from what I've seen, is wonderful already. So Thank I'm not, you. I don't expect different, better, but I'm saying maybe it actually improves. Your, As an artist. You're enjoying the moment. Yeah. yeah. Your ability to be fully like live in, in the moment of your life. Mm. Only as I'd add a little caveat to that is because when I'm acting, 
it is truly the you are moment. There. Yeah. You're just given over to it. Yeah, it's a yeah. spiritual experience. Yeah, yeah. I don't even always find it pleasurable, <laughs> but it's a, because it's not always pleasurable, but it's a spiritual experience, you know. I always say acting is for them and writing and directing is for me. Mm. When you're writing and directing, it's your time to play God. Yeah, I mean, you're mm. there, you're writing right, the world right, right. and all of that, and it's very pleasurable. And then when you're acting, you are emoting, suffering, or enjoying whatever it is for the vision of a greater peace. You know what I mean? So you are a soldier for a larger body. Let's talk about writing. Like mm. when when you write for you, mm. what what do you want to say? Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot that I want to say. But for example, I wrote a film. It's called A Night Worth Living, and it's based about a young man. I still remember the first time I fell in love, or I mm. felt those feelings of falling in love. 13th of February, 1999, a girl called Crystal Dixon walking down Old Brompton High Street. You know, Italian girl, chocolate chip mole on her, beauty <laughs> spot on her face. I still remember what that felt like. And so to me, I want to capture those moments of that teenage sensation of love and friendship with your boys and celebrating life and every, all the stakes being so huge. And then at the same time, to the right of me is like another movie I wrote, which is a family Christmas movie, essentially, but about a guy who's about to get, his girlfriend is pregnant and he's engaged and she comes from a different culture and he's going now to England to introduce this. So I, I write from the diary of Amel. Do you get what I'm saying? Sure. Potency, poignance, and so honest. And the voice is so, I know the voice is going to be unique uh -huh. because it's literally mine, that like you're coming into the world of me. And so that's the stuff and the stuff I'm writing. But at the same time, I have like an alien love story. I have a story about Mansa Musa, mm. which a lot of people don't know who that is, but Mansa Musa that on record. name is not unfamiliar to me. Yeah. Yeah. It, Mansa Musa is basically a guy lived around 13, 26, if I'm correct. He was from the Mali Empire. And he's, you know, the BBC did a documentary on him. He's the richest man to ever live. I mean, this okay. African man, he went around devaluing gold, but there's certain mythologies that are linked to oh, cool. who he is. And to me as well, just as a black Westerner, what Black Panther did was really good and cool and, and for some sort of pride, but also to reach back with real stories. Mm. You know, like other cultures have done so wonderfully, to reach back with real stories about the African experience gives one a sense of history. That particular time and place of that six, 700 years is one slot of history mm. for us. What I really appreciate when you was talking about, you didn't say the slaves, you said something to like slavery yeah. or enslaved person because no one is born a slave. You're born into a condition that decides to Call you frame you in that frame you, me in that way. Yeah. So there's so much art that I want to do before I'm out of here. And sorry, all of those sound really cool. And the Mansa Musa story, if in, you say he was the richest person that ever lived, mm -hmm. not that wealth alone is it's a, hook, a reason to be in the history books, but the fact that many people don't know this person's yeah. name, that makes it important work Absolutely, to, to man. go back in and 100%. tell that story. I mean, you know. a lot of people know so much about history is incredible. Yeah. A lot of the truth about history from all races right. have been documented, but we're such in a very kind of fragmented generation that you don't really pay attention. I mean, the Spanish had him on their maps, uh -huh. you know, on their old maps, uh -huh. they had an actual Mansa Musa right there. Or, yeah. or, or, that's Mansa Musa <laughs> land. So. And this brings me full circle on the ageism thing, mm. which is, the reason that we have such a skewed view of, of history in so many cases is because, as has often been said, history is written by the and conquerors, is yeah. written by the people in power, right, mm -hmm. and their descendants. And we don't hear the ordinary histories of people's lives. And as a result, we get it's the- a great title for a book, The Ordinary History of People's Lives. But I mean, we get the mistaken impression as a result that those lives don't matter all that much, mm -hmm. you know? And this also connects with what you're saying about ambition, because I think about big people, famous people, whatever in the world, and I also think about everybody else. It seems to me that every life has intrinsic value. And it, and, and it seems to me evident that also in the case of ageism, when we practice ageism, when we look at people as the elderly or whatever, mm. we're discarding an entire section of humanity with all of this, as you said, wisdom wealth. and wealth. Yeah. And just kind of like, oh yeah, they're all kind of one thing. Oh, yeah, and like, yeah, I yeah. Hope, hope I don't. But that's know, certainly in this thing, pocket you know? of the world. There's yeah, yeah. many yeah, pockets yeah, yeah, of the yeah, world yeah. where that's just not true. Right. Right. You know, right. For example, in Jamaican in Jamaica, culture, I was gonna say. The, the matriarch is the Don. In our families, it's always been the matriarch. 
grandma is put above everything. She's the closest thing to God if one believes in God. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So it's like... And as you go <clears throat> eastward too, like my wife is from Turkey. Right. Certainly in China as well. You there's know, there's a great tremendous amount of respect reverence. for the elderly. Yeah. It's us in the West that are a bit more... As far as I'm aware, America birthed the teenage culture, right? What a horrible violence, just like writing people out of history mm -hmm. to take some whole section of humanity and, and just, be like, they don't, they're invisible. They, they, they exist, know? yeah. 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 It can only harm us. You know? it, it, it can only harm us, man. And, and <laughs> it's happened to different sections of people in humanity. It's Hot. kind of what I'm talking about with Mansa Musa. Like yeah, those, yeah. those things need to be understood as a truism, you know, like all the Moors or... I don't know if you've ever you watched... Um, is it True Romance? Dennis Hopper to Christopher Walken speech. Okay, remind And me. Quentin Tarantino writes this speech about Italian-Americans and his... Dennis Hopper says a speech about Italian-Americans and his theories on uh, why oh, they're darker. Oh, yeah, 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 And so what Quentin Tarantino... I don't know what the purpose of that was, but the, what is said in there is a piece of history, actually. There's some history in there. There's right. like the a Mo true Moorish kingdom. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. It was, it's all in there. So if we go past, you know, the prejudice and all of that sort of stuff, we go, okay, well, what, what the hell are they talking about? And then you start to access history and understand what's what has transpired. I suppose the audience would be curious. I'm curious. What was it like? Uh, not just working with Idris Elba. I know you guys have known each other for a while, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. But working with him on his green directorial debut. Yeah, like, yeah. What was what was that dialogue about? Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to give you the most honest and unique <laughs> answer because I've answered this question before. Oh, and I'm okay, trying, right. Just trying to get a perspective on it. That's very honest. I think what was wonderful is that I met Idris and he gave me a gift. And you know, he, he, first of all, he didn't ask me to audition. He had faith in me. And him having faith in me and with his directorial debut, which I've only come to understand over the last two years we've been doing that, when you're a movie star, A-list movie star, you're putting yourself out there and it's a, it can be a dangerous moment in business for you to be doing so. And so, you know, it just- A lot just, of pressure you, to get it right. Yeah, whatever. man. Yeah, yeah. So he, I've thanked him before, but if he would be listening to this, I'd say thank you for having such faith. But that faith allowed me that gift of not having to go through the run of the mill of auditions and stuff like that, instilled in me a conviction to go above and beyond my own thoughts of possibility of what I could achieve and just seek out the truth. And so when we got closer to the production, uh, Mountain Between Us in December of 2016, mm -hmm. and you said, mate, do you want to come over and hang out and just talk about the film? And so we got to spend a lot of time talking about the film getting to know each other, getting close. And then he set me my tasks. Mm. He said, you know, Dee needs to look like this. They were all a bit more rake thin back then. The patois, the language, the thousand yard stare, mm. intensity. Mm. Then he said, you know, I would love it if you, how do you feel about method acting? And I was like, I've not done it before, but I feel like I would like to go down that process. And so what that entailed was me, once I left Canada, I went straight to Jamaica and lived there. And then I went back and forth, just getting a semblance of the world, finding out as much stories that I could kind of put inside myself and then putting myself in the circumstances mentally, which would be, you know, I'd wake up to a gunshot every morning. The first image I'd see is of Jerry Dredd on the, on the wall when I'm waking up. The whole apartment was filled with those memories of me and Yvonne and all that. I studied a lot of different actors like Daniel Day-Lewis and De Niro for Taxi Driver. This is the first time you fully immerse yourself in that kind of process. In that process, uh -huh. yeah. So I want to ask you because mm. I, I went, I am not an actor, but I went to acting school many years ago. Yeah. And one thing I found difficult about the, and this, by the way, is not the can you get me a job conversation. But I, uh, I haven't got a job right now. I'm unemployed. <laughs> the method acting like exercises were amazing for me, but then translating, holding on to the memories and the muscle memories that you access yeah, in yeah. exercises unconnected from the script mm. and then bringing that into the script? Like, yeah. how did you find that process of transfer? Like, you unearth something or you live something. Is it then for you just in your body and then you went and you go act it? Pretty much what okay. you just said, the last bit is okay, like, yeah. if you spend three or four months, first of all, in another voice. Uh, so if I'm only talking, yeah, 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 yeah. If I'm talking an American accent continuously <laughs> for da, 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 forever and ever, after a while, you're hearing the voice back to you and then you're like, oh my God, that doesn't sound like my voice. So there's a <laughs> disassociation that happens. And then after that, your mind starts to become accustomed to it. And then we're all trapped by the framework of our cultures, right? 
So when I'm English, I'm trapped by it. When you, you're American, you're trapped by it. Whether you know it or right, not, right, there's right. a trapping. Right, right. And so that helps. And then, you know, the imagination work of just sitting down for hours upon hours, imagining, okay, Jerry got shot. What happened next? How did I get into this? You know, in the movie, you've got D as a kid, and then you've got D when he grows up. When King Fox gives him the gun and says, you know, um, a soldier business, no, you know, between him having the short locks and him having the long locks, mm. what happened? So I took even bits from that Marlon James book and also the actual Yardie novel, the Victor Headley novel, which was very popular back in the 90s in, in England, and imagine the circumstances and continue to imagine the circumstances. And some of them were very rough circumstances to imagine. For the movie, we prettied up the character, but his mental state was definitely a bit different. So, you know, there's a line that I gotcha. love in the film where he says to Yvonne in the kitchen, you don't know me, you don't know the real me. You know, you know the things I've seen, Jerry knows me, Jerry knows the real me, he's seen things. You know the things I've done to people. So this is a very tormented soul based on the things mm -hmm, he's done mm -hmm. to people. Those things there, imagining them enough, putting yourself in the circumstance, trapping yourself in the accent and living in the world and everybody ex like coming in interaction with everybody that just basically accepts that's who you are helps majorly. And the last thing I'll say is people meeting you like that. Mm -hmm. So all of the actors in the movie met me as- You spoke in character, you were yeah, in character so the whole like time Yeah, so it's like they met the me set. like that. They couldn't really challenge it because right. that's who they met. That to me is what method acting was in the end for me. And also just sitting back in my own body and allowing this part of self. Because I, I prefer instead of saying characters, I say parts. Because it's this part of self that I've exemplified and now it was the driving force. Because we're all everybody. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a theory called Cleopatra's bathwater, which means, you know, there's no new water on the planet and we're right. all just constantly drinking each other. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's how that process went. And uh, it was quite a thing to let go. I remember. When it was done, you mean? Yeah, I remember. And it just knew, man. He was like, threw me a party when it was done in Jamaica. And I just had this voice of D in my head go, so what, um, you're done with me now? I'm like, that feels so weird. A split voice in your head. So that that was my experience on Yardie. And it was very, you know, despite whatever it's, it does or doesn't do in society, it shaped me as an artist in a way that you just can't really pay for, man. It's changed me as a human being, you know, in such a deep way and gave me a connection to my art in a new way and also to my family background in a new way. And I can say, you know, just as an audience member that the visceral you know, reality of the imaginative exercises that you did, like it's all evident, the subtle changes, mm. moment to moment, that scene in the kitchen, no, it's, it's powerful, thankful, it's visceral, it's obviously from the gut. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, Amel Amin, thank you so much for what coming on. Fucking Think again great today. conversation, man. Thank <laughs> I you. I really bro. appreciated this. I appreciate you. My favorite thing about this show is the constant shifts in perspective. It keeps you on your toes, or better said, knocks you off them. The only right stance is flexible, fluid, open. If you like what you're hearing on Think Again and you want to keep in touch with me, please visit my website, jasongotts.com, that's J-A-S-O-N-G-O-T-S.com, and sign up for my mailing list. I promise not to send you a million emails. I'll be back next week with eminent primatologist Franz DeWall talking about animal emotions. How's that for a perspective shift? I hope you can join me.